0: You're listening to the Library Pros Podcast with Chris and Bob, a techie librarian and a computer IT guy discussing libraries, technology, and all things this side of the reference desk.
1: Thanks, Carl. Hi, and welcome to Episode 92 of the Library Pros Podcast. I'm Chris.
0: And I'm Bob. And today we're coming to you from the booth at the Sachem Public Library in Holbrook, New York, and the M.S. Clark Memorial Library in Setauket, New York. Library Pros Podcast is a bi-monthly podcast, so please subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find podcasts. And please check us out on Twitter, at the Library Pros, and on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash the Library Pros. Consider leaving a review or telling someone about us, because word of mouth is the best way to help our podcast listenership grow.
1: So today's a special two-part episode. We're going to be having a discussion with the candidates for the American Library Association Office for President. Uh, this is the episode where we sit down with Emily Jerminski, the interim chief librarian at the Graduate Center of the City of New York, uh, City University of New York, which is also known as CUNY. Uh, and Emily is running against Kelvin Watson, the executive director of the Las Vegas-Clark County Library District. So before we begin, we wanted to let everybody know, in the interest of fairness, that we're going to ask both candidates exactly the same questions so the membership can, of ALA can hear in their own words... What their vision will be for the future of the organization. So, Emily, welcome. Welcome back, actually. This is your second time on the podcast. So thanks for being on with us.
2: Thank you. Excited to see you guys again.
1: So it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast to discuss your candidacy for president of ALA, an organization that's recognized worldwide for leadership in our profession.
2: Thanks. I'm totally excited. Very thrilled.
0: (laughs) So uh, just because this is a mainstay of questions, we like to ask all of our guests. Who is your favorite fictional librarian and why?
2: There are so many, you know, the party girl librarian. I love the Buffy librarian. I love, but I'm going to choose an under, under beloved fictional librarian, which is the librarian played by David Rakoff in the movie, the watermelon woman. This is a Cheryl Dunier film about the absence of African American women in the archive. And he is, he, he is hilarious in the role. Uh, the character Cheryl comes up and asks him uh, if they have anything in the library about a black actress from the 1930s. And he says, nothing comes up, check the black section in the reference library. (laughs) Completely a model of all the things not to do, but so sharp in the way that Cheryl Dunier, who's such a talented director, sort of casts him in this role to be sharp and a sort of the example of everything that's wrong with libraries and all the things that we're trying to do when we're when we're trying to be inclusive and embracing and welcoming to all.
1: Wow, that's something else.
2: Yeah, it's a great spot. And David was a fantastic comedian, and uh, the sort of campiness of his of his little bit in this in this movie is a must see.
1: That's the first for us, Bob. We've never had that one before. That's right. I was okay.
2: trying to stump you guys. I'm glad I came up with something. You, you got it. You did, it. You, you you did very it. well. That's great.
1: Sorry good. <laughs> So how did you come to librarianship? Um, what called you the, to the profession? Because as many of us, for many of us, we came to the profession as a second career. So is that the case for you as well?
2: Uh, you know, I had I tried some other things, but I'm definitely someone who started in libraries when I was relatively young in my early 20s. I uh, was working for magazines in uh, New York City. I graduated from college and tried to make it as a writer. Um, and I was fact checking at different magazines around town and i was doing as much writing as i could i was sort of writing little bits of product copy that would go on a magazine page like we had a um i worked at out magazine and they had a little spread about surfboards and i wrote this like meditation on long boards and you know i just was really trying to make it and i i, I wasn't i wasn't making it <laughs> I wasn't making it and I wasn't going to make it. And that sort of became pretty clear and it was right at the cusp of the internet. So the internet arrives and it becomes clear in a year that magazines are not going to be around forever in the way that they were, Uh, that the number of ways you could get paid was going to drastically drop. So uh, I decided I really should get out before I got stuck and, you know, was talking to a friend who had a friend. Mike Waldman, who's uh, a colleague of mine at Baruch College in CUNY, uh, met me for lunch and said, here's what I did. I went to Syracuse and got my library degree and I have a good life. And I was like, OK. And I applied for Syracuse library degree the next day and I've had a good life. I really love being in libraries.
1: Well, that really is the case, I think, for most of us. I mean, you talk about, you know, what you do during the day and the, the beauty of it is it's different every day you know you okay. never you never know what's going to come across your desk you never know what your patron or customer or stakeholder is going to going to bring across that desk and ask you uh if anything the only consistency is that there's no consistency in the day to day yes you yes you have collection development yes you have weeding yes you have the the regular stuff that librarians do but there's that it factor of you don't know what's going to pop up in in the course of a day so you know
2: yeah and i i wake up and i and i know that what i'm doing is a good thing which is not something that i knew about myself when i was trying to sell surfboards right something i don't care about um surfing is a beautiful sport but it's not my thing and i don't devote my life to sort of sales so the library has been a great home for me for sure
1: Exactly. You feel good about what you're doing because at the end of the day, it's, it's a not-for-profit. You're helping people. You're doing you know, every day. You walk away. Even if you had the worst day ever, at least you, helped, you know you helped at least one person.
2: I had the worst day ever today, at Chris, so I can
1: affirm <laughs> that it's true. Wow. So tell us about your role as the interim chief librarian at the Graduate Center at CUNY and how you think it prepares you for the office of president of ALA.
2: Sure. So that's a good question. and something I think about a lot because it's been a wild ride. So I took over as interim chief at the Graduate Center Library. I think we closed on a Saturday and I took the role that Monday. So it's really been a pandemic era experience and sort of trial by fire in terms of leadership experience and my capacity to respond quickly to change, you know, and those kinds of things that we talk about in the abstract. I mean, they were all super real in the pandemic, right? Like no, none of us had have had the last two years that we thought we were going to have um so that was definitely true for me uh you know so all of the things that i've done in the in in this role you know things from trying to keep everybody connected to each other so that we don't sort of lose track of who we are as a community of people like that i took really seriously you know and making sure that we had plenty of time to talk with one another, to connect in as many ways as we could in meetings and uh, sort of workshops and trainings, like that kind of like really aggressive push on both keeping the staff con- connected to each other and then trying to keep the library connected to everyone else in the community. That kind of work, which I've done lots and lots of in, in this role, but also in my previous roles as a um, as an instruction librarian, as a reference librarian, and then as a union leader. So I've spent lots of time. My leadership roles are sort of varied and complex, but they include uh, leading my uh, faculty labor union at Long Island University in the wake of a lockout. It's a similar thing, like crisis hits, everything falls apart. You got to pull everybody together and sort of figure out how to move forward towards a common goal. So I think like in some ways that's, where I just keep finding myself in the middle of like a disaster and trying to pick up the pieces and try to keep it going and try to keep it connected. And um, so I have a ton of practice doing that, which is why in part, I think now's the right time for somebody like me to sort of take, take a leadership role in the in the association. Not that everything's falling apart, but I think we're at the leading edge of the crises we're going to see in libraries and the association. So, you know, I'm an all in kind of guy. So like to be there you know i'm like give me the ball when things are sort of crashing because i really thrive in those moments
1: in in terms of what we've just been through with with the pandemic Mm -hmm. i think we've all had trial by fire so what you said resonated with me because it's it's the same i think for all of us you know it's it's been real trial by fire
2: because you show up for work every day and like you were saying like everything's different but it's within a range of expected normals from like a budget problem to like a stapler problem right like you know these are the sort of range of things we expect but you have to reinvent your entire service model in response to a deadly pandemic that's you know and you guys are in long island so you know you know going through it here in the height of that in march when it was really you know we lost people sort of every day and it was just terrible and and hard and sad and, and really real and how do you continue to serve a community in that time it's like that's the question i think we're all still asking ourselves you know
0: yeah and then try to bring them back to some sort of normalcy is even
2: no crazy. it's crazy yeah. yeah people don't want to go back to normal but like people yeah. need normal in times of grief and trauma i don't know yeah. do you guys have the
1: answers no, no. <laughs> Ask our kids. Maybe they have the answers.
0: That's right. Yeah. The teenagers, yeah. they have the answers. So, yeah.
1: My 13 year old. Yeah. He knows.
0: Yep, he knows exactly. exactly. So you're running for office uh, for what many people around the world consider the beacon of light and guidance in our industry. So what's your vision for ALA and do you think you can inspire meaningful change during a single year?
2: I mean, that's the question, right? It's a year of service and it's really three years, right? Cause you're, you're uh, incoming president then your president then your past president and you know you're sort of engaged in conversations with library leaders as you sort of go and you know as much as I you know think that I'm offering something unique to the association in a crucial time that's valuable like I think that that's why I'm bothering you know um I also know that most of my priorities are shared by most of us in the association right commitment for the right to read commitments to full funding for public institutions like our libraries um the need to contend with climate change and what it's doing to our buildings and to our collections uh the need to sort of acknowledge and elevate library staff so that they feel respected and valued in their workplaces like i don't think that anything i care about is stuff that you guys don't care about that kelvin doesn't care about like i think so to the extent that i can elevate the conversations and work that's already being done in the association i think that. That's like a big part of the job. You know, Patty Wong is doing amazing work around sustainability. I know Les has got a fantastic plan uh, to, you know, work with uh, library staff on the the ALA APA side with the library workforce. So, you know, I'd be part of a longer story that precedes me. I don't think I'm trying to offer anything that's like a, a serious departure from the values and commitments that we all share. What I do think I can add is a commitment to organizing as a model of change right? So I think we can sometimes get stuck in an advocacy approach where we just have to say the right thing to the right people at the right time. And I think that that's sometimes true, but it leaves a lot up to chance. And I really believe if we sort of organize together and knit ourselves together as a sort of stronger and tighter collective, we can make better demands on uh, the people who sort of we have to contend with. So for example, you know, I think we all got that press release today or if you're in the ala mindset which i am right now um we got an uh, e- email today from the ala policy folks who said there's a disappointing budget allotment from the federal government this year so we didn't get that the, the budget was held flat right for funding federal funding for libraries and like that's that's a tragedy when you look at what we're up against and so how do you how do you move the needle on that and i i really think that like we're better advocates if we're better organized. There's a mass movement behind those kinds of efforts so that sort of ALA can point to us and say, look, we've got a growing membership. They're loud. They get out all the time. They sort of are a show of force in, in you know, like, I think that's kind of organizing work that we, we can be doing. I know that people in the association are already doing it, but I do think like a of a of focus on organizing for power, collective power for change is is crucial piece of the puzzle and I'd like to add it to the association.
1: So under your leadership, what will ALA do to attract, foster, and support people from diverse backgrounds to join the profession? Because this is something uh, that I know from where we are in, on Long Island, it, it's, it gets harder and harder to try to draw people who are people of color into the profession. So do you have a plan about that or thoughts about that?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think my thoughts are, you know, the association has all kinds of sort of pipeline projects, like um, not all kinds, like clearly I think they can be expanded, but like the spectrum fellowship program and, you know, the association of research libraries has the fellowship program. And there are a number of sort of initiatives uh, that I think are useful and uh, important and can be ex- expanded. I think collaborating with the uh, National Associations of Librarians of Color organizations, so uh, BCALA, APALA, um, AILA, KALA, like the uh, forma, these groups are, I think are, that's where you see a lot of really impressive organizing happening among library workers of color. And so making sure that we are collaborating with those Uh, affiliated organizations, I think is really important. Um, And then, you know, I do think if we address workforce problems, if we think about how we can sort of advance sort of worker, if we're worker-centered in our messaging and in our approach, and I understand that it's the American Library Association, it's about libraries and there are limits to how much they can advocate, but I do think that there are ways that we could be elevating the needs of library workers in such a way that everybody feels a little more supported. And I think that and it feels like they have the tools to make meaningful change inside their own workplaces. So it's not like I I want a national union for everyone, even though I I maybe do, but maybe I'm not going to say that. But anyway, like (laughs) I do think everybody needs to have the tools to organize their workplace if they want to. And I think if we if we could just add that piece to our professional development program, it would be really meaningful because if you raise sort of the profile of of library workers, staff, and and MLS degreed staff, like that kind of focus can can sort of make libraries a more welcoming place for everybody, um, especially librarians of color who, you know, let's be honest, like the pipe like if I live in New York City, I've worked in New York City libraries my entire career. And we don't have a problem attracting a diverse staff. What we have a problem with is elevating those staff to librarian positions or paying those staff on par with librarians so that we have sort of a more equitable workplace. So how do we make that happen? I think we train each other, we figure out how to organize with each other. So yeah, I sound like a bumper sticker, but we got to organize our workplaces. And I think, you know, ALA could could use some of its some of its sort of infrastructure to teach us how.
1: Well, you know, it's, it's one of those things too, where that it's it's a stumbling block for some because you need to have a master's degree to become a librarian if you're working in a population over a certain amount.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, so, you know how it, the the bigger question I think, and this isn't posed to you to you yeah. as much as it's just out to the ether. You know how do we make it so it doesn't cost sixty thousand dollars to get a, a library degree? I mean, I, I know CUNY is a lot cheaper, but I'm just saying in in general. You know, you go to you know you, you, online or whether you go to a big university or wherever. You know. That the cost has risen exponentially, and how do it's we help people who may not have the means to pay for that, or, or are going to be in debt for the next thirty years of their lives to try to make that money back? I mean, how? Do, that's, that's it's a I, hard sell, yeah. and I
2: feel like I hear a lot of people say, "Well, just get rid of the MLS," right? But the MLS is also like, you can see it as a wall, but it's also a ladder, right? So I can get the degree and that makes me qualified for applying for these jobs, you know, and you can, you can see the ways that it actually um, could be used as a tool for equity. So, but I think you're absolutely right, Chris, you have to think about it also in terms of how are we going to deal with student debt, the crushing student debt load. And that, that's a barrier for, that's a barrier on a whole other level that, you know, yeah, I definitely don't have answers for it, but I don't think Getting rid of the MLS is the is the sort of quick solution that people
1: think it is. No, because it, it rises up it rises the profession up. It also legitimizes what we do in terms mm-hmm. of a certain amount of education that we have to achieve in order to do what we do. And, you know, it, it there is a certain amount of prestige that comes with getting a master's degree as well, which, you know, look, we want to make mom and dad Absolutely. proud too. But you know, this My is mom
2: is still proud. Of me. So, it's
1: so it's one of those things also where there's a certain acumen that a lot of people take for granted when it comes to what you study when you're in library school. So, and it's not to belittle people who are library professionals who haven't gotten their degree or anything like that. It's just that there's a certain, and again, it depends on the school, It depends on your individual professors, obviously, because sometimes mm-hmm. you get, you have great professors and, and not so great professors. But, you know, the industry as a whole has to have that benchmark, I think, in order to to legitimize what we do. And in terms yeah, I mean, of, we, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry.
2: We have to think about how to make that education accessible to people. Right. And, you know, you've got to both invest in programs that can help people pay the tuition. And you have to be sort of in league with other kinds of political movements that are about, you know, sort of redistributing wealth so that people have you know so it's not just the wealthy who can gain access to these degrees but i don't know those are huge problems that we're probably not going to solve um,
1: exactly tonight. exactly
0: on an hour-long podcast, no probably not yeah <laughs> <laughs> so this is a, this next one is a loaded question how has the pandemic and the professions movement Uh, to online meetings and interactions with patrons customers or stakeholders impacted the profession and what does your vision of the future look like in this hybrid world including professional development for members of quote unquote library land
2: i mean i think if you ask this question of like 10 different people that have 10 different answers right right. as somebody who spent my whole day on zoom i'm like i never want to do (laughs) like this seriously i'll come out to long island hang out with you guys i don't want to do this anymore
1: perfect perfect. that's
2: great Um, my eyes are like glazing over and it's just very hard. Um, and I also think, you know, uh, there are ways that it, that the sort of virtual only sort of makes our connections to one another a little bit frayed. Right. I've noticed this in my organization, just like, I don't feel as connected to the people that I don't see, you know, and that's just, that could just be a personal thing. And, you know, so saying that, I think we have to acknowledge though that the high that, Zoom has made it vastly easier to bring people to meetings and conferences and events that otherwise could never afford to go, you know, and I've seen, I've watched talks happening in the Philippines and I've watched talks happening in France and I haven't had to fly there. And that's like amazing and great. I also think, you know, the pandemic is ongoing. People have very different sort of risk profiles and risk sort of tolerances and capacities to sort of be around others in this time. So we need to have options that help people stay uh, connected to professional development stuff. I also think we need to see each other, Um, those of us who can. And, you know, I think the vaccines are remarkable and they make it possible for us to gather again. Um, And I'm planning to go to ALA this summer in D.C. I've got him on a couple of panels and so I'll be there um, in person and I'm grateful for the vaccines that make it possible for me to do that. Um yeah it's like accessibility needs lots of ways of getting getting into something lots of ways of connecting because accessibility for one is an accessibility for all right so if we made it an all online conference for accessibility reasons all the people who can't don't have the broadband can't connect because their laptop is stuttering who you know just have childcare issues and they need to actually physically leave to be able to be in a professional development opportunity. So you need a real mix and I know it's expensive and I know smarter people than I am are really putting a lot of thought and energy into shaping those sort of hybrid futures, which I think are, we have, we we're stuck with those and we get those, right? We get those. It's a good thing.
1: Right. I mean, hybrid, like you said, it, it gives you the opportunity to have access to a conference that maybe you wouldn't have had access to before yeah it it does make a lot of sense to do to keep this hybrid thing i think hybrid's not going away anytime soon
2: do you all have like are the long island associations doing in person events
1: uh well the long island library conference was uh postponed this year um, okay because because there was still some concern over you know spread and and stuff and they had to make the call probably at the tail end of omicron because how do you make a decision for a conference in may when it's February, I mean, it's, it's kind totally. of hard to do.
0: Yeah, and uh, the numbers were crazy back then. So. Yeah,
1: so. They
2: it, were really scary. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Makes
1: total sense. But some of our uh, board meetings and things like that are uh, progressing nicely. And um, we are, you know, we're, we're having some meetings in person again. And, you know, it, it's a slow progression like anything else.
2: Yeah, that's a couple steps toward each other and then a few steps back. And, you know.
1: Yep, exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So, what would you say to librarians who are not ALA members? You know, what's the inspiration for them to join?
2: Yeah. You know, I get this question a lot, mostly in the form of like, why are you bothering with ALA? Right. Um, Cause I put a lot of work, work into this, you know, I really like believe in the association and I'm a life member. I've been, you know, active for many years. I've served a term on council. I've served, as an international relations committee chair, I, I edit the book reviews of the journal in my division. You know, so I'm like super engaged in it, and I get a lot out of it. Um, librarians who are not ALA members, I, I think. You know, uh, I think back to when I started library school, which is in 2001. So remember how I said that thing about disasters? It also like I enter library school. I start working at the New York Public Library on like September. 4th and then September 11th happens and there's hiring freeze for years. Right. And I remember joining ALA because it was taking a stand on the side of privacy that nobody else was, was doing right. Like it was the only organization that, that I saw from where I was sitting that was doing something I thought was really pretty brave and saying, the Patriot Act should not be passed because it violates our principles. And I was very proud to be a member of the association So i think in some ways the association like if it's if it's doing work that we're proud of if it can communicate a little better to people who aren't members the the vital work that it does on behalf of all all of us those uh sort of washington wins right that because the budget is flat this year but it wasn't last year right like there have been increases and so that's in large part due to ala and its advocacy on behalf of all libraries Um, I would like to see the association take sort of bold stands on the side of right, because I think that's what gets people interested and engaged in the association and want to be part of it. Right. So like I'm a member of the park by my house, you know, and I don't obviously need to be a member because I can just run around the park and it's open to everybody. But I donate to it because I value it. I value the work it does and the sort of life it makes possible in my community. And so, you know, that would be the argument I'd make to ALA to to non-ala people is like this is a mighty fighting institution that has been working on behalf of all of us in these amazing ways and maybe you don't see them and maybe you don't value them but they're there they're important you know and i've got i have a friend who's had like job trouble because of her because of these sort of book challenges that are happening so i know that's happening to people everywhere and it's happened to a friend of mine she called the office of intellectual freedom and instantly got a response got some financial support to tie her over and uh, it was a great connection. So that's like a resource that we have that ALA members make possible. Um, I think we just need to tell sort of louder, prouder stories about that.
1: Absolutely. Because people need to know what the association does and can do for them in the profession. And I know that I could speak for many people that listen to this podcast that are outside the United States and like we said earlier, you know, the ALA is a beacon for other library associations around the world. I know that we have colleagues in Australia who have been on this podcast that will cite ALA and talk about mm-hmm. ALA standards. So in terms of, and not to belittle their their associations, because their associations are great as well, but, you know, the gold standard seems to be ALA, and it's the association that everyone seems to uh, pattern themselves after. So ALA has a great value, not only here in the United States, but around the world. And people need to know more about, I think, what ALA does.
2: Yeah. And I would just push a little on that. I do think like the, you know, I do a lot of work in the, um, where I was prior to the pandemic doing some work in the Philippines and was in the Philippines when the pandemic hit and working on a on a project about library classification uh, there. And I think, you know, the library librarians there are doing such incredible work and we often, I think, don't. We have sort of a one-way um at least for as a casual member, like I'm sure it's not true in the international work that the members are doing, but there's often kind of a sense of a one-way street there. Um, and so I do think, especially around issues of climate change and disaster associations in parts of the world that are already dealing with the effects of climate change that have a little bit of a head start on that, you know, we 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 need to be doing, I think, better listening as well.
1: Okay, so outside of libraries, what are your personal interests? Do those those activities guide or even inspire you in your work life and in the work world?
2: I'm glad that you're giving me an opportunity to talk about the fact that I just started synchronized swimming lessons. So that's my
1: synchronized swimming. Wow.
2: (laughs) Started in September. We've got our first recital late May. um, And it is the hardest thing I've ever done. It involves balance underwater. And it involves being really bad at something and just trying again and again and again and again and again and again again until something clicks. So I started lessons about like we started this class in September and last Saturday was the first time I was able to do a reverse somersault underwater, which is like a key part of our routine. And like I've just been practicing and practicing and practicing and then finally it clicked. And I think like that's sort of how I approach everything in my life and how I approach ALA, how I approach this campaign. If I win, how I'll approach approach leadership in the institution, just absolute commitment to just like being a beginner, being open to what's coming next and working really hard until I master something. So that's sort of how I am. I've run some marathons. I'm like, you know, I like I had cancer a few years ago and I just was like that person that you've heard about that just does everything even though they have cancer you know like took go over as president of my union while i was sick anyway you know so just like i'm i don't know i'm like a give me the ball and i'll run it to the ground kind of person um although i'm not good at synchronized swimming so i would hope to be better at association leadership than i am in the pool
1: <laughs> synchronized swimming that's a first for us <laughs> too that's great
0: that's a great philosophy though Yeah,
2: yeah i'm having such a good time it's wonderful we have to build a whole routine out of the fact that I can't roll over. Does
0: that mean-
2: <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes you got to do that. It's fine.
0: So we wanted to give you a moment to speak directly to the membership of ALA and the profession at large, uh, both here domestically and around the world. So the floor is yours.
2: What an offer. Thank you so much. <laughs> um, I'm asking for your vote for ALA president, I think we are in a moment where we need all of us. We need everybody's energy. We need everybody to be a part of making change for all of us, defending our school librarians and our public librarians as they face challenges that I I think none of us expected to see in the 21st century uh, sort of working on behalf of open access and open resources for our college and university librarians dealing with like a consolidating vendor landscape all the problems all of us are facing that sometimes make me think, let me just get in the pool and stay there forever. Cause <laughs> it's really, this is very hard work, but like, I'm I actually have a lot of hope. I have a lot of hope for all of us. I'm running on a platform that's built on the, on the values. I hold dear of collective power and the need to build collective power on behalf of public good. I believe that all of us can be a part of that project. Um, and if, if, if elected, I'm going to listen as hard as I can. Make as many connections as I can so that all of us know that we are not working alone, that we all have each other's backs, and that ALA is a space where we can do that work.
1: Wonderful. So, Emily Draminsky, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your thoughts.
0: It's a pleasure.
2: Thanks the invitation so much. I'm going to go order a pizza for my 13 year old. Try to win him back over <laughs>
0: with, food, with food, right? Yeah. Yeah.
1: So we wanted to say to remember everybody, if you are a member of ALA, the ballot mailing for ALA, the ALA election will begin on the second Monday in March and on March 14th, 2022. Wow. This is really good writing, huh? Yeah. It will begin (laughs) on the second Monday in March on March 14th, 2022, and will run through the first Wednesday in April until April 6th, 2022. Individuals must be members in good standing to vote. In the 2022 ALA elections. And to to renew your membership online, you can go online to ec.ala.org/slash membership/slash renew/slash login or by calling 1-800-545-2433 and select option one. And for more information, please visit the ALA election page at www.ala.org/about ALA/governance forward slash ALA election and all of this information will be in the show notes for this podcast. So, Emily, thanks again for being on the podcast and we wish you luck.
2: Thanks so much, Chris and Bob. Always a pleasure. Have it a great day. wonderful. Meeting.
1: Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank
2: you.
1: We have come to the end of another episode of The Library Prose and we thank you for listening. If you have any questions or comments on this or any episode, click on the contact us form on our website, thelibraryprose.com. Visit us on Twitter at the Library Pros and on Facebook at facebook.com slash Pros. Don't forget to tell a friend or colleague and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Special thanks to our podcasting engineer, Dean Meyer. Remember, the opinions stated by the library pros and their guests are solely those of Chris and Bob and are not those of the Sachin Public Library, the M.S. Clark Memorial Library, or any other library. See you next time.
0: You've been listening to the Library Pros Podcast. The Library Pros are brought to you by Pippin Productions and by the Library Pros themselves, Krista Christopher and Bob Johnson. Special thanks to Sachin Public Library for providing space for this podcast. Until the next turn of the page, I'm your announcer, Carlton Welch.